Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat that you have given us, for this time you have given us to gather together in holy convocation before you to worship you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and only God of all creation, that we get to rejoice in the reality of your presence in our midst. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly and powerfully into our hearts and our lives, that you will humble us to receive from you and to understand what you have in store. Father, I pray that you speak directly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your words received, and that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we are in Parsha Shoftim. Um, Parsha Shoftim comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 through 21, verse 9. Um, and, uh, and then our Haftorah is uh, Isaiah 51.12, traditionally through 52.12, but uh, we'll get into that in a minute. This week and next week, if you remember over the past uh, little bit, we've been talking about the seven messages of Isaiah and how we're reading basically Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60 over the course of seven weeks in our service. But there's this neat little portion of scripture that's kind of been hacked out of the readings. And this week and next week is where it's been hacked out of. And you can kind of see, if you've read the Parshot this week, you can kind of see exactly where the slicing occurred um, and, and where they just stopped reading a particular section. And historically, it appears as though it was actually a part of the seven messages of Isaiah and the Haftorah reading prior to probably within the last, uh, I would assume within the last 1,500, 1,600 years, uh, maybe a little more than that. Um, but, and that passage is Isaiah 52, 12 through uh, all of 53 and the suffering servant passage of Isaiah, uh, which we know speaks specifically and literally to the death uh, of Yeshua HaMashiach as our uh, sacrifice for our sins, taking our sins upon his own back. Um, and so I hypothesize, and this is just my theory, I hypothesize that this, the, the suffering servant passage from Isaiah was likely hacked out of next week's Parsha. This week uh, is Isaiah 51, 12 through 52, 12. Next week's is Isaiah 54, 1 through 10, um, which is just a really weird, I mean, it's powerful and it's important, but it's just a really weird segment out of all of this to be dealing with. So I think next week's is actually supposed to be uh, 52.13 through uh, 54.10 um, and dealing with the suffering servant and so on. So we'll get into some more of that in a little bit, but just so you can kind of see as you're reading through the Parsha this week and next week, you can kind of get a grasp of what I mean when I say that it was neatly sliced out of the reading. Still in the Bible, it wasn't cut out of the Bible uh, within Judaism, but it was definitely removed from our regular readings. As a matter of fact, for the most part, most people uh, in the traditional Jewish world are discouraged from reading Isaiah 53 on their own. They have to have their rabbi there to tell them what it really means because there's the fear that they accidentally find out what it really means. Um, so so uh, it's a very important passage uh, for us as believers as well. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning with verse 4. Um, this Torah Parsha and Haftorah, uh, it's just so powerful. There's so much 
stuffed in this Parsha that it's, it's hard to really kind of to pick and choose what to talk about and what to, to teach on. Um, but I feel like the Lord's placed something on my heart that may very well, I don't know who it's for, it may be for all of us. I know it meant a lot to me um, as I was preparing for this, but I feel like he's placed a word on my heart that uh, is, is timely and necessary and that I hope is a blessing to you as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, when you come to the land that Adonai your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You will indeed set over yourselves a king, whom Adonai your God chooses, one from among your brothers, will be appointed as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he should multiply. Uh, only he should not multiply horses for himself and make the people return to Egypt to reply to multiply horses because Adonai has said to you, you must never go back that way again. Nor should he multiply wives for himself so that his heart does not turn aside, nor multiply much silver and gold for himself. Now, verse 18, now when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself a copy of the Torah on a scroll, from which uh, is before the Levitical Kohanim. It will remain with him, and he will read it all the days of his life in order to learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his brothers, and he will not turn from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he may prolong his days in his kingship, he and his sons in the midst of Israel. Now, I want to deal real quick with the obvious elephant in the room, that first couple of verses, where it says, and when the time comes that you have possessed the land and the inheritance that I am giving to you, you will decide, hey, let me put a king over myself like all the nations around us, right? And I've talked about this some before. I think this is one of the most uh, perplexing parts of Scripture to see how Israel operates in dealing with this because we know scripturally that Adonai's purpose and his desire was that he alone be the king of Israel. That Israel not have an earthly king, that we not have a human king over us, but instead that we recognize the theocratic kingship of Adonai, that he is our Lord and king, and that everything we have is given to us by him. And we serve him and him alone. Can't serve two masters. The Brachadashah gives us that idea. The New Covenant writings gives us that idea. We can't serve two masters. We can only serve one. So do we serve an earthly king or a heavenly king? He goes on to say, You will surely place the king over yourself, one whom I choose for you. And what we realize is, is that the Lord isn't specifically saying that the one he chooses was his will. But instead that when we decide we want to walk outside of his will, he is going to aim to protect us as much as possible, even when we're outside of his will. Because see, it was never his will or his purpose for Israel to have a king. So if we got a king, the only reason we had one is because we chose to step outside of his will. We chose to step outside of his desire for our nation. And when the time comes, that's exactly what we do. We tell uh, the prophet Samuel, hey, you know what? We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king here on earth that sits on a throne here on earth that we can go to and have his leadership. And Samuel gets in an uproar and screams and yells and rants and raves and says, are you really this stupid? Do you not recognize, I'm paraphrasing, do you not recognize that the Lord alone should be your king? And yet here you are doing this despicable thing, asking for a king over you. And the Lord ends up giving them, and, and he chooses the first king, right? The, the Lord says he chose the first king, and that first king was Saul, and Saul was a complete and total train wreck. Um, I mean, Saul almost destroyed the whole nation of Israel. Uh, in reality, if you look at how it all played out, he was, he was uh, a cancer for Israel. He was 
crazy. He was a mess. He was, but, but what was powerful in that narrative was that he was exactly what the people thought should be king. Right? If we look at the, nation, the narrative, it says that Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a warrior's warrior. He was a natural leader. He was big. He was strong. And he was capable. But then we move to David. And David is the man that the Lord chose because David was after the Lord's heart. And we look at David, who is the Lord's vision of who should be a leader over Israel. And David was the exact opposite. His own father didn't think enough of him to say, hey, maybe he could be one of the ones that's looked at as king. When the prophet comes to, to Jesse's household and says, hey, gather your sons. I want I wanna to see, I believe the Lord's told me one of your sons is going to be the king, next king over Israel. Gather your sons so I can look them over. And he calls all of his sons except David. He leaves David out in the fields. And when Samuel says, hey, don't you have another son? And Jesse says, oh, I do, but he's nothing. He's a boy. He's out. Just leave him out there. He'll be okay. Lo and behold, the one that nobody would have thought as to be the king is the one that the Lord had chosen. Because the reality is, is the Lord's idea of leadership and our idea of leadership don't necessarily match up all the time. Because often we're thinking about it from the perspective outside of his will. And this is the case here in this Torah, Parsha. Israel uh, is told by God the time will come where you will desire to be like all the other nations around you. But one of the most important realities of the Torah was it was given to us that we be set aside and set apart from all the nations around us. It was the Lord's desire and his will for Israel that we live our lives in such a way that we honor our covenant with him in such a way that we reside in his presence in such a way that the nations around us look at us and want what we have, not the other way around. And the problem is as believers, we still live that same mentality. We look at the world around us and we want what they have. We want to be like everybody else because we don't want people to think we're weird or we're strange or we're different. But that's exactly what the Word of God calls us to be, is weird, strange, and different to the world. The world is not to look at us and go, hey, they look just like us. Instead, the world is to look at us and go, whatever it is they've got, I want that. I want a part of that. And so he goes on to say in verse 18 that when the king uh, uh, sits on his throne, that he is to write for himself a copy of the Torah scroll. So each king is to write their own copy. And historically and traditionally, it's uh, shown that the kings of Israel actually wrote two one that stayed in the, the, the palace and one that they carried with them when he went out to war. So the, the king actually wrote two Torah scrolls. And the reason I bring that up is because it's really interesting. The Torah scroll, the Torah itself, holds the covenants of Adonai with Israel, right? It's the commandments and the rulings and so on and so forth of how to live out this covenant relationship with the Lord. But it also acts if you would, as a judge against us. Because when we are outside of the will of God, we are outside of the covenant. When we are not living by his word, we are, not, we are outside the covenant. And so that Torah then reminds us that we're walking separate from the Lord. The word of God in general, Genesis to Revelation, when we are walking outside of the will of God, the word of God continually reminds us how far away from right relationship with the Lord we are. Now that doesn't mean that the word of God is accusatory, but it's there to correct and restore us. And so it's interesting that the king would write two Torah scrolls because when we look at scripture, the, this week's Parsha says over and over again, how many witnesses are required for someone to be punished? Two or more, right? So the Torah serves as a witness over us before the Lord. And how many scrolls did the king write? He wrote two. Why? Because those two scrolls served as a witness over him. 
And you and I, very interestingly enough, have the, the scriptures, the word of God, that we can hold in our hand, that we can read, that we can carry with us. And if you're anything like me, you've got a whole shelf of various translations and, and such of the Bible and, uh, in your house, and you've got Bible scattered all over your house, and you can literally go into almost anywhere in the house and pick a Bible up in seconds flat. We've always got a Bible laying around, and that's one witness. But then as believers... Jeremiah 31 tells us the word is now written upon our heart. So now that word becomes a part of who we are. So our king writes that word upon our heart. So now we have two witnesses. We have the written word in our hand, and we have that word etched in our hearts. The presence of the living word, Yeshua Mashiach, residing within us. Now we have two witnesses over us just as the king had two witnesses over him. And it reminds us and constantly draws us back to his presence. I don't know about you, but at some of the worst times in my life, the only thing that was able to bring me back to right relationship with the Lord was when I finally broke down and decided to open up one of these. The only thing was when I returned back to the word of the Lord. You know, we have the Torah cycle today. Because during the days of uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and their uh, compadres, um, they realized the reason we were in the situation we were in, the reason the temple was destroyed on Tishbaav was because we walked away from relationship with the word of the Lord. It was no longer a priority in our lives. It was no longer something we were interactive with day in and day out. And so they said, you know what? The only way we can fix this and, and, and actually stay in Israel and actually live this life with the Lord is if we return to the word being a priority in our lives. So we took the Torah and we sp split it up into portions that are read throughout the year so that we read the entirety of the Torah over the course of the year so that every single day and every single week we are interacting with the word of the Lord. And it became an integral part of the way of life in Judaism. And as believers, being in that same way, mentally connected to the word, constantly in it, should be an integral part of our walk with the Lord as well. What's interesting is we go back just a little bit in this Parsha. Um, I'm sorry, actually go forward real quick to uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Uh, I want to bring this back real quick. Uh, because what we end up seeing is Israel is told they're going to ask for a king and there's all this uh, what the king should and shouldn't do and that the king has to be a brother of Israel, has to be one of the descendants from one of the tribes of Israel and so on. We know that to end up being from the tribe of Judah. Verse 15 brings to perspective a whole depth, another depth of this. Of Chapter 18 says, Adonai your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking from your midst, from your brothers. Again, it has to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It has to be part of one of the tribes of Israel. Ultimately, it has to be a part of the tribe of Judah. To him you must listen. This is just what you asked of Adonai, your God, and Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, I cannot continue to hear the voice of Adonai, my God, or see this great fire anymore, I will die. This is when the Lord spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai, and Israel became fearful of his voice, said, if we hear his voice anymore, we will die. And they told Moses, you go and get his word and bring it back to us. And everything that you say, everything he says through you, we will do. Verse 17, Adonai said to me, they have done well in what you have spoken. What they have spoken, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. Now, whoever does not listen to my words that this prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. The reality is, is we recognize that not only this prophet, but the ultimate king of Israel is Messiah Yeshua. Hebrews tells us that Yeshua is both our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and our king uh, of all kings. He is the divinic lineage 
king over Israel. And when all things are restored, he will serve as our king. And so as we look at this, we recognize this duality of who God or who Yeshua is and his purpose and role over Israel and this connection that it has for us into his word. But we go back to chapter 16, verse 18, towards the beginning or at the beginning of this parsha. It says, judges and officers, you are to appoint within all your gates that Adonai your God is giving you according to your tribes and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to twist justice. You must not show partiality or take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Justice justice you must pursue so that you may live and possess the land of Adonai your God is giving you. You are not to plant for yourselves an Asherah pole of any kind of wood beside the altar of Adonai your God that you make for yourselves, nor are you to set a pillar for yourselves. Adonai your God hates this. So we have what seems to be two contrastingly different things, right? We have the, prom- or the, the command to set up judges over Israel, and these judges will rule over Israel, and that we are to listen to what they say, and that we are to constantly pursue justice no matter what. And then in the same breath, he says, by the way, don't set up an Asherah pole by the altar, and don't set up uh, these, uh, these pillars for yourselves. And it seems like they are so out of place sitting next to each other until we realize that the whole purpose of the Torah is to call Israel to be set apart righteous and holy to be different from the nations around us in just a few verses he tells israel you're going to come to a point where you want to be like the nations and ask for a king but at this point he's telling us not to be like the nations he's commanding us to set up judges godly men uh, who will oversee delineating between issues and problems and and whether or not the people of israel have sinned so as there to be a righteous uh, pursuit of justice within the nation of Israel. And then immediately afterwards, in the same breath, he says, don't be like all the other nations around you. Do not set up pillars. Do not set up Asherah poles. And why does he say this? Because in pagan worship and pagan worship practice and structure, that was where they went to, uh, to, to do, you know, speak to dead people and to divine from evil spirits and so on and so forth, the decisions that need to be made. So if we were to go to the judge of Israel and say, hey, you know, so-and-so did something wrong by me or so-and-so did something wrong by the Lord, uh, you need to deal with this. And here's another witness that's going to do it. And that judge would then turn to an Asherah pole and seek out divination from the evil one rather than following justice the way the Lord prescribed, we would have an issue in Israel. And so these aren't contrastingly different things, but instead they go hand in hand. The Lord is saying, even in the pursuit of justice, do not be like the nations around you. You have called you to be higher and holier. I've called you to be righteous and better than this. He goes on in this Parsha numerous times to talk about how uh, in order for one to be punished, in order for there to be capital punishment, which is the case for certain sins, that there must be two or three witnesses at minimum in order to punish somebody. And when we look to the Baruch HaDashah, and particularly the Gospels, and we see the lady accused of adultery brought to Yeshua, and they bring her to Yeshua's feet, and there's this big crowd saying, she was caught red-handed in adultery, you've got to stone her. And lots of people in the body of Messiah look to that passage, and, and Yeshua doesn't punish her and lets her go. They look at that passage and go, see, Yeshua did away with the law. He didn't care about the law anymore. But the reality is, is he actually showed that there was more to the commandments than what they were trying to do. Because the Torah says there needed to be two or three witnesses. The Torah also says not only do there need to be two or three or more witnesses, but both parties caught in adultery must be murdered or must be killed, must be punished. Both parties. So if she was caught red-handed in adultery, that means one of the scumbags in the crowd was the one that was caught with her and should have been up there also. 
So when Yeshua says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. Why did he say that? Well, because the Torah also says in this Parsha that the ones who serve as uh, witnesses against that person, as accusers against that person, are the ones that throw the first stone. So when you take your children, if you took your son before the priests and before the judges of Israel and said, my kid's too far gone, there's nothing I can do for him, he's a miserable excuse of a human being, and we've got to stone him, guess who has to stone him first? The parent. And what parent's going to want to do that? What parent's going to want to turn their back on Israel? If you catch your next door neighbor in adultery and you have to bring them before the judges of Israel, the priests of Israel, and say they were caught in adultery, and the judge says, okay, you're two or three witnesses, you've got to throw the first stone. Who's going to want to be that person? Nobody's going to want to be that person. Yeshua wasn't ignoring the Torah. He wasn't undoing the Torah. He was upholding the Torah to its fullest, which those trying to trap him were not. And the reality is, had he stoned her, had he stoned her, which he was God in flesh, he could have easily known whether or not she was caught red-handed. But had he stoned her, they would have trapped him and caused more problems. Interestingly enough, the body of Messiah instead took the bait of the trap. And we tried to undo the word of God by that passage in which the Lord was trying to uphold the word of God better than those who were accusing or trying to trap him. He upheld the Torah. He said, we can't just stone her. Just because there's witnesses doesn't mean anything. There had to be both parties caught in adultery to be stoned or else neither can be and neither can be punished here on earth. And he gave her opportunity to repent and be restored. I don't know about you, but personally, I think that's awesome because I don't know all of your lives, but I know my mistakes and my sins in my life. And I'll tell you right now, I'm thankful for the grace that the Lord has provided. I am thankful for his mercy. I am thankful that in spite of everything I have done wrong in my life, that the Lord has still chosen to restore and renew me, that he has still chosen to allow me to receive his salvation, which is given freely for all, that he has chosen to place his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit within me, and to use me for the good of his kingdom in the world that I live in. Because truth be told, I deserve the worst of the worst, as I'm sure most of you uh, would admit to as well. Well, you may not admit to it, but if you admit to yourself, it's enough that we deserve the worst of the worst. We deserve everything that should be coming to us. But by the grace and mercy of the Lord, we have been restored. And here's what's interesting about it is we look at these commandments where it talks about when somebody's, you know, when the, the, your son goes wayward and becomes a drunkard or whatever, or, or somebody caught in adultery must be stoned, or somebody steals something must be stoned, all these kinds of things. And, and we look at it and lots of people today go, oh, but see, God is just miserable and angry and vindictive and, and judgmental and, and homicidal and whatever other uh, adjectives we can come up with. But the reality is, is if you pay attention to the Torah, there's a lot more outs then there are punishments. There's a lot more grace and mercy than there are punishments. You ever notice we don't read in the scriptures about a wayward son being stoned? You know why? Because the parents aren't going to want to do that. The parents aren't going to want to accuse them of it. The parents aren't going to want to admit there's no hope left for their kid. The parents aren't going to want to stone their own kid. Grace and mercy, there's opportunity for restoration. You know what? We don't read that often about people caught in adultery stoned because grace and mercy and opportunity to be restored. And as believers, we should take pride in that. We should take joy in the fact that we serve a God who is merciful and who loves us. As we look at the Haftorah, Isaiah uh, 52, 53, this entire passage of Scripture is all about Yeshua taking on the punishment that is due us. The suffering servant 
Mashiach ben Yosef, the son of Joseph, the Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant. This whole section of Isaiah is all about the reality that God himself will come a little lower than the angels, robed in flesh. He will take on the punishment that is due us. And you've got to understand, as believers, not only do we have one witness in the Torah, we have two witness with the word written on our heart. We have three witness with Messiah being a part of our lives. We have four witness with God seeing and knowing everything that we do. And yet the Lord has still given us opportunity for salvation, restoration, and redemption. We are due everything that is coming to us. But the Lord has restored us. He has taken that upon his own back. Messiah Yeshua came as our suffering servant and took the lashes and took the bruises and took his beard being ripped out and took the humiliation and took the stake, the death, the punishment of death itself that you and I wouldn't have to. See, the reality is all of the death punishments spoken of in the Torah are merely there to, for, uh, to point us toward the ultimate punishment for sin, which is eternal death. It's not there that we actually go and kill people for sinning. Because I think there'd be a lot less people left in the world if we did. Right? There'd be a lot less people left in the world if we killed it. If we, we'd have to wipe out everyone. We'd have to nuke the whole planet. No way to get around it. Including ourselves. But it wasn't about the punishment here on earth. It was a wake-up call about the eternal. Because the Torah's singular purpose is to point us to Messiah so that we can be truly set apart, righteous, and holy in the blood atonement of Messiah. So that we aren't just Joe Schmo that sins every day of our lives, but instead we are bought by the blood of the Lamb. We are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High who are redeemed and restored by the blood of the Lamb and who are made righteous and holy, set apart from the world around us that the world can look at us and desire what we have. When we look forward in scriptures, we realize in uh, John chapter 1 verse 19 this is after the whole description of the word made flesh tabernacling amongst us John Yochanan Hamabil John the immerser uh, travels around and uh, is ministering in the, 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 the wilderness and particularly uh, at, at the Jordan River ministering throughout Israel and the word tells us that he is that prophet who would come before Messiah and the spirit of Elijah he says verse 19 this is John's testimony when the Judean leaders sent Kohanim priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Because he was stirring up things in Israel. People were, were curious what was going on. They come to him, who are you? He openly admitted and did not deny. He admitted, I am not the Messiah. So the, the Israelites came to him and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for? And John says, I'm not. They said, what then? Are you Elijah? They asked him, I am not. Said John, are you the prophet? Speaking of the prophet who would come and the order, of, or the prophet like Moses who would come. And he says, no. So they went to, they said to him, who are you? Give us an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make way, make straight the way of Adonai, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those sent were from, uh, those sent were from the Pharisees. They asked him, if you are not Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet, who then, uh, why then are you immersing? I immerse in water, John answered. Among you stands one who, do, uh, who you do not know. Coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And we know that the one that came after him was Messiah Yeshua, who not only 
was immersing people in water in a literal sense of being, people being immersed in the, the waters of Tevila and remission of sin. But he literally was immersing us in these spiritual waters of life, the Maim Chaim that will never run dry and has continued to do so these last 2,000 years. And so John recognizes, Israel even recognized that there would be this prophet who would come like Moses and that we were to pay attention to him and listen to him. And John says, that one's coming and he's right behind me and he's even in your midst and you don't realize it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, Indeed, every Kohen stands day by day, serving and offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But on the other hand, when this one offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from then on until his enemies are made his foot, a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those being made holy. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, who testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will cut with them. After those days, says Adonai, I will put my Torah upon their hearts and upon their minds. I will write it. Then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It doesn't mean the Torah is done away with, but that every time we break His covenant, His commandments, His word, every time we sin, He will remember our sins no more when we repent. It will be washed away and cleansed. Why? Because Messiah took those sins upon His back. He took the earthly punishment for us so that we never have to take the eternal punishment that we deserve. And as we prepare for the high holy days and the ten days of awe and we're in this mindset of repentance during this month of Elul, uh, uh, constantly seeking the Lord's face, asking to draw out from the deepest, darkest parts of our hearts and our lives those things that we've tried to hide from Him and even from ourselves that we are guilty of and that are harming and damaging our lives and our relationship with the Lord. It is time that we recognize that even those sins that we refuse to let go of, we refuse to admit, and we refuse to take ownership of, can be freed from us and the power and the might of the blood of the Lamb. He came not just as that prophet, not just as our King, but as our Redeemer. He came as one who loves us and desires us and wants to restore us. And He has given us everything. Everything. And unfortunately, we as the body of Messiah continually not only sin, but we continually dissect and dichotomize his word. And we make it as though the two portions, the Brachadashah or the New Covenant writings, New Testament, and the Tanakh or the Old Testament are at combat, uh, combativeness against each other. That there are a constant battle that they can't possibly uh, reside together, which is why most English translations have a blank page between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament because we have these perspectives that they cannot possibly work together. That one had to supersede and be better than the other, but the reality is, is neither can stand on their own. They both are part of the Word of God, and they are both absolutely and totally viable and necessary in our lives. And the reality is, is we cannot understand the redemption provided by Messiah as we read it in the Brachadashah unless we understand the foundations of why we were redeemed from the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And so I want to encourage you during these weeks ahead as we prepare for Rosh Hashanah, humbly set yourself down before the Lord and ask Him to begin to dig into the depths of your heart and reveal these things that we still need to offer up to Him. 
But I also want to encourage you to recognize that that word which serves as a witness before us and the Lord now resides in our lives so that we can actually live spotless lives. Because it's not something that's just external anymore. It's something that flows from the internal. I want to encourage you to recognize that your sins have been paid for. That you have been forgiven. The moment you ask for repentance, your sins are forgiven. That salvation was provided for you. That you can be restored in faithfulness to the Lord. And more importantly, to recognize that Yeshua is our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, our High Priest in the heavenlies, and that we have nothing here on this earth that we need to look to to desire because we have everything we could ever want or need in the Lord. It's time that the body of Messiah stopped trying to placate and be like the world around us, but instead that we be what we were called to be, which is set apart righteous and holy so that others look at us and go, there is something different, and I want to know what it is. Not just different because we're weird fundamentalist people. Some of us might be. But not different because of that. Not different because the, the way we dress or act is different, but different because there's literally something within us, in our core, which has been changed by the work of Messiah. And it flows and permeates through everything that we are so that we never have to be like the world around us anymore. We have been bought and redeemed to be different. Difference not a bad thing. But we're bought and redeemed to be different so that everyone else can want to be like us, not the other way around. In the same sense, Messianic Judaism, in closing, has spent decades upon decades trying to prove our validity as a Jewish movement to the Jewish world trying to get the Jewish world to accept us as part of the Jewish world. But the reality is, Messianic Judaism is biblical Judaism. And if we are living our lives as Messianic believers, Jew and Gentile alike, through the example of Messiah Yeshua, we are the Judaism that the Jewish world should be trying to gain approval from. We've been doing things backwards. We've been doing things backwards. We've also been trying to get the rest of the body of Messiah to gain approval, to give us approval too. Well, you know what? It's not what we're here for. As I'm telling you right now, if we wanted the rest of the body of Messiah to truly approve of, of us and be okay with us, we stop this Saturday thing, we stop this Torah thing, we stop all of this mess, and we go to Sundays like everyone else, and we just mold into their churches. But it's not going to work. Because we're living in a day and age where the Lord is restoring the Jewish head of the body of Messiah. And it is our calling to be different, to be set aside, not just from the world around us, but that the rest of the body of Messiah will go, you know what? There is something different there. He was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, wasn't he? Maybe we should also look into the Jewish stuff and love the Jewish people. Because unfortunately, most of the body of Messiah wants the Jewish Messiah but not the Jewish stuff or the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, for way too many years, the Jewish people have been slaughtered by the people that stole the Jewish Messiah. It's time that we restore the reality of what the body of Messiah was supposed to be, which is Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah, grafted in the olive tree, recognizing the king of Israel, 
Messiah Yeshua as the king of our lives and the salvation that was provided. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. Father, I thank you that no matter what we have done in our lives, no matter how far we have walked away from you, that you are there waiting and desiring to restore us. Father, that you love us so much that you gave your only begotten son that we may have eternal life in, our, in your midst. That you love us so much that you created us specifically to experience the salvation brought by your son. That you created all of humanity recognizing that we would ultimately choose sin over relationship with you. You created us in spite of that for the purpose of receiving your salvation. Father, I thank you that grace and mercy were the foundations of creation. I thank you that you love your creation so much that you constantly are drawing us back into yourself. And Father, I praise you that you are our King of kings, our Lord of lords, that you are the one who loves and desires us and that have given us through Messiah Yeshua no reason whatsoever to look at the world around us and ever desire to be anything that they are, but to be set apart righteous and holy that they may find you in us. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.